0: The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in My statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be My people, and I will be your God." That prophecy of Ezekiel has become reality in our generation. The story of Israel is part of the ministry of the Jerusalem Channel. On this historic 70th anniversary, of the rebirth of Israel, please consider making a special gift to continue our media ministry through our website, the Jerusalem Channel app, or by mail.
1: As everyone knows from the Christmas story, Bethlehem was the place of our Lord's birth, but it was here in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. But Nazareth was also a place of rejection for Him. If you've never felt accepted in your own hometown, or if your own family has rejected the faith you try to share, please keep in mind that Jesus has already gone down that road for all of us. After all, the servant isn't above his master, and successful people learn to thrive on what seems to be a devastating setback. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. After Jesus' baptism and temptations during 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth and, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue where his rejection would begin. I know that we can't compare Jesus to our modern-day icons, but fear of rejection is often a person's number one anxiety. And almost every record label in the country turned down the Beatles at first. Even Walt Disney was fired because he lacked imagination, supposedly. And the list goes on and on. And don't forget all those famous authors whose manuscripts were turned down by countless publishers in the beginning, and so on and so forth. And in the Christian world, rejections happen all the time. Some of the greatest missionaries of all time were turned down by missions boards, but they were not defeated by rejection. Through determination and skill, they went on to accomplish great exploits for the kingdom of God. Now, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus visits his hometown with his followers. And on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and begins to teach. Many who heard him were astounded, but they were also offended. They asked themselves, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? There's nothing like a new anointing to offend religious people. And Mark's Gospel says that Jesus could do no deeds of power here except to heal a few sick folk. Jesus was amazed at his community's lack of belief in him. Sadly, he observed that prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. There was surely a real melancholy in the Lord's language and tone. What a rebuke to unbelief and what a reproach. Matthew's Gospel is similar, but Luke the physician, with his special interest in healing, moves this episode in his Gospel account to the beginning of Jesus' preaching in Galilee He uses it as an introduction to what follows and as an inauguration of the Lord's ministry. So, in Luke's account in the New Testament, Jesus is described as performing a public reading of Scripture, during which Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the prophecy that we know as Isaiah 61. The account is recorded in Luke chapter 4. So, of all the scrolls that could be handed to Jesus that day, in the providence of God, the attendant gave him the scroll containing the words of Isaiah, which described his messianic credentials. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, he began to read publicly, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach glad tidings to the meek. This beautiful prose is in the form of a soliloquy. It discloses the Lord's innermost thoughts. And Bible scholars have asked, who is the speaker? Was it Isaiah himself? The Jewish Targum and many modern critics claim that Isaiah, chapter 61, contains the words of the prophet concerning himself. But evangelicals recognize why the Lord applied the passage to Himself and to His own mission. These opening words in Isaiah 61 are a repeat of what God had already been saying concerning the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 42. And so, I want to read from Isaiah 42 these amazing words because it's so important as a description of the Messiah's manifesto. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not shout or cry aloud or raise his voice in the streets. And jumping down to verse six, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. And that's why, by the way, the steeple behind me on the Basilica here in Nazareth has a lighthouse beneath its cross, emblem of Jesus being the light of the world. Verse 7 of Isaiah 42 continues, To open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison those who sat in darkness from the prison house. All of this prophetically spoke of the Lord's deliverance ministry. Jesus is the great emancipator, the great liberator. There's no individual that he can't heal who comes to him in faith. And there's no sick society that he can't restore as long as that society is willing to repent You see, sin is silky smooth at first, but sin quickly bites us and then it morphs into the grip of iron bands taking prisoners. I was in the old city of Jerusalem not long ago, fellowshipping with an Arab brother who said that only Jesus could break the iron bands of his former drug habit. Even the rehabilitation center was helpless to heal him, but Jesus appeared to him in an open vision and Jesus broke the chains and healed him of a long-standing drug addiction. So getting back to the synagogue here in Nazareth, Jesus was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and all the eyes were fastened on him. The people were astonished. They recognized that such authority hadn't been bestowed upon him by a mere sage. Yet they were baffled and Ultimately, they distrusted him because, to them, he was only the carpenter's son. They were prejudiced on account of his family, and they were prejudiced on account of his lack of educational credentials. He hadn't been trained in the rabbinical schools, so they thought nothing of him. Still, Jesus continued reading from the scroll, The Lord hath anointed me. You see, we call Jesus Christ because that title Christ means Messiah, Mashiach. And the Hebrew literally means the Anointed One. Jesus had been given by God the Spirit without measure. His anointing actually began in the womb of the Virgin Mary here in Nazareth at the Incarnation. And the anointing was openly manifested at His baptism and during the Transfiguration and ultimately, by the power that raised him from the dead. And so he continued, the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And to this verse, more than any other verse, the commentaries trace the use of the word gospel, meaning good news. Because that very day, Jesus claimed the promise was fulfilled in himself. He became the great evangelist and all who follow Him are called to this same office. This good news concerns His complete salvation. He would become for us a ransom paid for sins, and He would become the great physician of our bodies and souls, who never failed to cure His patients. He continued, He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. The primary thought here is of a healing balm applied To the heart's wounds. In fact, throughout his life, Jesus would be trained in the school of suffering that he might learn to bind the wounds of mourners and broken hearts. To a broken person, Messiah comes with his message of a free and full pardon, which is ending up a healing. And so he continued to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the commentaries say that this phrase is taken from the law of the year of jubilee mentioned in Leviticus, chapter 25. And the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This statement goes way beyond the healing ministry. It encompasses the healing of a sick society. These phrases describe the special offices of the servant who is mentioned in Isaiah 42 and. Isaiah 53, and, of course, Isaiah 61. The captivity that Jesus frees us from is the captivity of sin. following the Septuagint, the Gospel of Luke renders the reading and recovering of sight to the blind. And we know from following the exploits of Jesus in the Gospels that His Messianic miracles included the healing of many blind persons, Including the man who was born blind, and that's recorded in John chapter 9. The souls addressed by Messiah are called the meek, the brokenhearted, captives, and the bound. These kinds of persons were the kind of persons addressed in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus never ran after the great and the wealthy, but he was willing to minister to the brokenhearted, to the sick to lepers, to outcasts, to humble souls who fought with besetting sins. Well, back in the synagogue, Jesus ended his reading abruptly with these words, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the Lord stopped right there. Why didn't he finish the sentence, the next line, the day of vengeance of our God? It's because he didn't come to proclaim the day of vengeance, He's, he proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord because that is the year we're living in, the Anno Domini, the dispensation of grace and favor in which we're still living until the day comes and we're swept away and all true believers are translated. The acceptable year of the Lord has been lasting nearly 2,000 years. Without reading the rest, which I'll share in a minute, Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and said, Today, in your hearing, this text has come true. Well, people are always surprised when a prophecy is fulfilled, even today. At first, the Nazarenes hung on his every word. But when Jesus began to give his commentary on the passage, the people became enraged, and they tried to hurl him off the top of a cliff. In my lifetime, I've witnessed many Bible prophecies fulfilled in the Middle East in the nation of Israel. And instead of rejoicing at the fulfilled words of God in bringing His Jewish people home again, many people and many nations are angry opponents of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yet God is in the process right now of restoring His Jewish people to their former estate. And consequently all hell has been loosed against them. In his day the people tried to hurl Jesus over a precipice and today Israel's enemies try to hurl them into the sea. Nevertheless, Israel continues to thrive against all odds and to bless the world with their agricultural and medical technology and with their high-tech innovations. Well, Jesus concluded that a prophet can't be honored in his own hometown. Familiarity does breed contempt. So, coming back to Nazareth, he experienced his first rejection. And anybody who's called to serve the Lord will be rejected, I guarantee it. It's just impossible to be immune from rejection. And in some cases, it's even a badge of honor. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Have you had your own Nazareth experience? Does your family reject or despise your testimony? Well, don't be surprised, for this is the way of the cross. The people stumbled over Jesus and many even within our own families will stumble over our testimony, but not all, thank God. Some will be saved and healed. The rejections are a form of guidance even, because we simply have to move on. The Nazarenes heard greatness coming from him, yet they couldn't perceive that the same boy who'd worked in the carpenter's shop could turn out to be somebody great. All his life, Jesus struggled within the confines of human flesh to be recognized for who he really was. I often think of the example in John chapter 4 when he asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water at Jacob's well. And he said to her, if you knew who I am and the gift of God, you would instead be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. He was referring to eternal life. You see, not everyone is able to recognize in Jesus the gift of God. And it's the same with his ministers here on earth. Careless people don't see the value in you. They don't care to cultivate your acquaintance, although you may carry the Lord's priceless anointing. You could do so much for them. You could have mentored so many people, but they didn't see the value of the gift of God in you. Well, the commentaries on Jesus' return to Nazareth remind us that it's possible to live closely to a man or a woman of God and not see the gift of God in them. The Nazarenes recognized the Lord's wisdom and they had heard already of his mighty works. But all of this was nevertheless neutralized by their familiarity with his former life. And so they surmised, well, we've known him ever since he was a boy. We used to bring our plows and yokes to him to be repaired in the carpenter's shop. And, And look, here are his ordinary brothers and sisters. And what about his mother? She's nothing special. In fact, we were always suspicious about her pregnancy anyway. So where did he get all of this wisdom? And so to all of this, Jesus concluded, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. In His teaching in the synagogue that day, Jesus mentioned that both the prophets Elijah and Elisha had been involved in helping Gentiles. Elijah had fed a widow in the region of Sidon and Elisha had healed a Syrian general of leprosy named Naaman. When Jesus pointed out that God had gone outside the fold, outside the house of Israel to show mercy, This was more than the locals could take. Time after time, however, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was not a racist. He ministered to the hated Samaritans. He healed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman, and He healed the servant of a Roman centurion. Well, the whole congregation were infuriated. The truth is. Some truths are so powerful that you have to get out of town after preaching. Jesus passed through the midst of the angry mob because it wasn't his time to die for the nation. And guess what? He also taught his disciples to do the same, to move on. When you're not received, don't hang around. Just shake the dust off your shoes and move on to the next place. That's what he taught. But now let's return to Isaiah 61 and continue on where the Lord stopped off because I hope you'll find it as fascinating as I do that this chapter describes both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. In Nazareth, that Sabbath day, Jesus only read the verses about his first coming. But now, because I believe we're living so close to the time of his second coming, Let's continue to read where Jesus left off and see what it says about the future. So in this chapter 61, Messiah announces his twofold commission to bring gospel mercy at his first coming and at his second coming to bring judgments on unbelievers and comfort to Zion. Listen to the description of the restoration of the nation of Israel and we're eyewitnesses of these things. He says, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This is all following, of course, the Holocaust, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and so that he might be glorified. Yes, folks, the Jewish people have been planted again in their own land. And verse 4 says, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. We see this happening with all of the archaeology, sites uncovered, and all of the massive rebuilding going on in Israel by the returning Israelis. Verse 5, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Yes, volunteers from the nations are helping in Israel's fields and vineyards. And verse 6 says, But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. This will happen in the future in their national religious revival, soon to come. Verse seven, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double and everlasting joy shall be theirs. Amen and amen. This is all coming in the near future. For those of you who are prophecy watchers and watchmen on the walls, it's no surprise. But now I want to switch to the consequences of unbelief in Nazareth. We just have no idea how dangerous it is. The Gospels say here in his hometown that Jesus laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. The Gospel of Matthew states the reason for the Lord's low performance as a healer in Nazareth more fully than Mark does. In Matthew 13, 58, it says, and he did not so many miracles there because of their unbelief. But I want you to notice that there were some miracles. There were some sick people that had faith in him, and they came to him, beseeching him to heal them. And as always, Jesus reciprocated, and he did lay his hands on them, and he cured whoever came to him in faith. I want also to point out that the Gospels say that Jesus marveled at their unbelief, the unbelief that was resonant in the majority of the town's folk. Mark 6.5 says he could do their no mighty work, and that's a startling statement. Yet I want you to notice that Jesus still persisted in his mission of mercy. He still laid hands on people, and he still healed as many in Nazareth as were not offended by him. He did indeed perform some miracles here. He laid his hands on some sick folk and he healed them, but none of his greater miracles like raising the dead were performed here. Of course, the commentaries say that even the less spectacular healings ought to have sufficed. The Nazarenes had sufficient evidence had they not chosen to be blind. But he went in and out among them, the commentaries say, like one who was hindered and disabled marveling at their unbelief, or rather marveling because of their unbelief. As far as we know, Jesus never visited here again. But when he appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus in one of his post-resurrection appearances in Acts 22, verse 8, Jesus identified himself as Jesus of Nazareth. He still loved his town and the people. And please don't forget, the record says that he still did some miracles here. So that should have been enough. But Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And did you know that in the Gospels Jesus marveled twice? He marveled once at great faith. That's good. But he marveled once at great unbelief. And that's tragic. The centurion's faith was marvelous. The Nazarene's unbelief was equally a marvel in reverse. Oh, Lord, please help us against the spirit of unbelief. We want you to be able to marvel at our faith in this generation. We don't want you to marvel at our unbelief, especially since we're surrounded by so much Bible prophecy being fulfilled before our very eyes. We'll discover that as a rule, the Lord's miracles do require faith, either on the part of the persons needing help or by those interceding on behalf for them. Let's always petition the Lord in faith because he's the author and finisher of faith. If anything, let's be like the father in Mark chapter nine who brought his afflicted son to Jesus and said, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't like to say my unbelief because I don't want to own unbelief, but the man nevertheless spoke transparently So now, what can we learn from the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth? Of course, we learn that painful rejection is part of life and that we have to shake the dust off of our shoes. Move on and not fear rejection in order to fulfill our individual destinies. But there's one thing that we should learn to fear, and that is rejecting Jesus and rejecting His healing, saving power. So I beg you today, don't let this be the indictment of our generation that Messiah could do no mighty work among us because of unbelief. May divine grace deliver us from unbelief. Jesus can't work mightily today if His people's faith is feeble. And this is nearly 2,000 years after the cross and after Pentecost. Yet there remains so much land to be possessed. Our unbelief often hinders the Lord from doing great exploits. But on the other hand, our faith will signal him to carry out exploits through us. The men and women who've accomplished the most for the Lord in this world have been from every kind of background imaginable. But there's one thing that we all have in common, and that is, we have to be men and women of vision and faith. And if we're full of faith, we can accomplish exploits. So now I'd like to encourage you to stay in faith. And also we can stay in touch through the social media and through our website at exploits.tv where we invite you to sign up for our newsletter, Exploits, which is based upon Daniel eleven thirty-two, 32. And that inspiring verse declares that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and we'll take action. The King James Version says we'll do exploits. So we can also stay in touch through our Jerusalem Channel app, which you can download from your favorite app store free of charge. Download it onto your phone or tablet. Now I've got to say shalom until next time. I'm Christine Dark, earnestly contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha.